me share this thought with you. In pastoral ministry for 23 years, yes, I'm old, the reason I have seen why too many churches become ineffective and irrelevant is because they are woefully reluctant to trust the next generation to lead. Just let that sink in for a minute. The reason I have seen why too many churches become ineffective and irrelevant is because they are woefully reluctant to trust the next generation to lead. Can I tell you the next generation is more prepared to lead than we realize? They're more prepared. Their, their, their character is ready. It's not perfect, but guess what? Ours isn't either. They're more prepared. They are more gifted than we realize. The next generation is more gifted. God has put talents and abilities and creativity in the next generation that he did not put in us. Now, he put things in us, too, that the generation that came before us did not have. But the next generation is more gifted than we realize. They are more willing than we realize. The next generation is more willing. Oftentimes, they're not willing because we tell them that they're not ready. They're more willing now, is there a wisdom that we carry, gray hairs like us, or no hairs? I'm a no hair, right? Gray hairs and no hairs. Is there a wisdom that we have that they need? Yes, there is. Because there are things that only time can give to us. There, there are things that only life experience can give to us. There is a wisdom that takes time to, 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 to mature. But we're supposed to use that wisdom to guide them, not suppress them, Right? We're supposed to use that wisdom to resource them and release them and follow them. Some of the wisest people are people that are following young people. Come on. More prepared, more gifted, more willing. There is a battle that is raging in the unseen realm that we believe in here at City Life Church that has dire consequences. It started in the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden where the devil tempted the first man and the first woman and sin entered in the world. We don't believe that the, that part of the Bible or any part of the Bible are fables. We believe that's history. And that set into motion a battle that Christians are supposed to be participating in, pushing back against the forces of darkness in the places where we live. It's what, this, I'm convinced it's one of the reasons why movies like Lord of the Rings, like Harry Potter, where all of those types of epic movies, Star Wars, they, they resonate with us because they put in front of us this battle between good and evil, and something inside of us is drawn to it. You know why? Because there is a battle between good and evil that's real. It's part of Ecclesiastes 3 where God says he put eternity in our hearts. There are things that we see it, even if it is a fabrication out of the fantasy mind of a secular world that is reflecting back to us something that's true. We're drawn to it. Genesis 3, 14 to 15. I'm going to read a series of verses. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, this is in the beginning of time, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will curse and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, that's us, we're her offspring. And, we will and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, is this a prophetic declaration of the coming of Christ? Yes, it is. Is it a prophetic declaration that he's going to die for the sins of the world? Yes, it is. The idea is that, that he will strike his heel as his death, but he will, come on, strike his head in the sense that he rises from the dead and conquers sin and death. But can I just tell you, this is also something else. 
This is God telling to us that every generation is positioned and prepared to do battle against the enemy. And the devil knows it. And he comes after the next generation. And it's our responsibility to make them ready, but it's also our responsibility to let them know that there is a battle that they're supposed to enjoin. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Paul picks up on this theme. A final word, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on all of God's armor that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. It sounds like what's at the beginning of the Star Wars movie, right? When there's the text that's scrolling across the screen. You with me? That always moves too fast before I can read it. These are not fanciful thoughts of a creative writer. This is Paul giving us insight into the unseen world. Are we, as a church, making our young people ready to join the fight? Are they inspired to by watching us? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, it's all throughout, especially the New Testament. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. Come on, our praise is a weapon. So good, right? We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Why is that? Because every person's greatest desire is to know him and to be known by him. The church is at the center of Jesus' battle plan. The church is at the center of Jesus' battle plan. In Matthew 16, 13 to 18, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but if you're a note taker, you can reference that. Also, the notes, every single week we put our notes online, every single week. Matthew 16, 13 to 18, Jesus declares his plan that, that he's going to build his church. And, and he says that upon this church, right, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He, he makes a declaration right there. He's going to build a church, and that church is going to engage in a battle with the enemy, right, and the forces of evil at work in this world. And he's already told us that the victory is ours. But it doesn't mean that we don't have to join the fight. From the first century until today, Local church, I believe, to Jesus meant a group of people in covenant relationship with each other and a cooperative effort to tell the story of the gospel to the people of their city and to model for them what it means to live according to the way of Jesus. This idea of telling the story of the gospel and living the way of Jesus isn't creative thought for us. It's born out of this book. Did you know that Christianity, before it was called Christianity, was called the way? It's called the way. Right? Because they recognize that these people lived differently than everyone else. When people look at your life, do they see you as someone who lives a little bit differently than the rest of the world? Do you know the story of the gospel to tell it? And are you living the way of Jesus to demonstrate it to a lost world? Are you in covenant relationship with a local church in a cooperative effort to make Jesus easy to find? You know what's fascinating is that Jesus launches this plan, right? In Matthew 16, he, he says, this is going to be the heart of my strategy. The heart of my strategy is to build something he calls the church. And then the people he picked to lead it were, were 12 men and a handful of mothers. 
And the 12 men that he picked, all but one of them was more than likely under 20 years old. Did you know that? Now, you might say, Fred, well, you know, 1918 meant something different back then. I'm just telling you, it maybe meant a little something different, but 18 has always been 18, right? And if you don't believe that, you can read the New Testament and find out for yourself because they, they were saying and doing crazy things. And, and when you read it as if they were 18 years old, you're like, of course that's what they were saying and doing because they were 18 years old. We believe that because in Matthew 17, 24 to 27, this isn't just conjecture or fanciful thought. Matthew 17, 24 to 27 tells us that when Jesus, I believe it was in the town of Capernaum, Peter comes up to him because someone had posed a question to him. There was someone going around collecting what's called the temple tax. The temple tax. And, 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 and this person said, hey, does Jesus and your group, have you paid your temple tax? And Peter's like, yeah, of course we have. And then the very next verse, he goes to Jesus and he pulls him aside and he says, hey, have we paid the temple tax, right? You love Peter, right? Oh, yeah, of course we paid that. Jesus, you paid the temple tax, right? You paid the temple. And, and that's, that's the moment in Scripture where Jesus says to Peter, I want you to go down to the water. I want you to cast a line and you're going to catch a fish. And in that fish's mouth, you're going to find a coin. And that coin is going to be enough to pay the temple tax for you and for me. It's an incredible miracle. You with me? We, we talk about the, the, the turning the water to wine and walking on the water and the calming of the seas. J- Jesus sends Peter down. Now, if you have ever fished in your life, just catching a fish is hard enough. But you're going to catch a fish that has the exact amount of money that you need to pay your taxes. Some of you are going fishing tonight. You're like, April 15th is coming. You got a line in the water. You got a line in the water. Now, do you think Jesus only wanted to pay his and Peter's tax and just forgot about the other disciples? Do you think it was a little April Fool's Day for themselves? Hey, let's play a trick on the other disciples, Peter. Let's pay our tax, tell the disciples we pay theirs, but not. That's that's not who Jesus is. So, So to pay the temple tax, the only people that were required to pay it were men who were 20 years and older. So many historians believe that this and through much of the other study of the New Testament, but especially this, is an indication that those other disciples weren't required to pay a temple tax because they were under 20 years. It, it, it causes you to read the Bible a little bit differently, does it not? I think we see these, these men as, as, as grown men, and, and they're just young adults. They're just young adults. And Jesus pick them to build his church. It's incredible, isn't it? Were there people that were wiser? Sure. When he picked that, those 12 men, there was a group probably about maybe anywhere from, say, 100 to 300 people. And Jesus went away and prayed the entire night. It, it, the entire night. The entire night. Comes back out in the morning and picks those 12. Were there other people in that crowd that were wiser? You better believe that there were. Were there other people in that crowd that were more talented and gifted? You better believe that there were. They had better life experience, who, who weren't probably going to create the problems that these did. You, but I think Jesus was trying to tell us something with the 12 that he picked. I think Jesus was trying to say something to us. Let the next generation lead before you think that they're ready. That's how Jesus did it. And I think he was modeling something for us. I think this word begat, 
which is the title of this message, is one of the most powerful verses, most powerful words in all of Scripture. We miss it because most of our modern translations don't use it. And even if it did, we wouldn't see it. Because, you know, as we like to joke here, that many of you and myself tempted sometimes as well that in our Bible reading plans, we get to the genealogical list and we just push past to the next page. Right? It's too long. It's names that we don't recognize and can't pronounce. And then sometimes we wonder why did God put it in there anyways. And I think one of the reasons why he did is because of what we're talking about tonight is that God wants us to understand that every generation has a responsibility to get the next generation ready to pass the baton. Matthew 1, 2 through 6, I'm just going to give you, just let's just read a little bit of it. Abraham begat Isaac. This is, right, but I read the New Living Translation. This Bible here, when I was, this is the first Bible I ever owned as a Christian. Isn't that cool? My, my sister and her husband gave it to me in December of 1990. It's in King James. We didn't have all those modern translations back then. We suffered, people. We suffered. We suffered. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Pharaoh and Zerah and Tamar. And Pharaoh begat Esram. And Esram begat Aram. And Aram begat Aminadab. And Aminadab begat Nason. And Nason begat Salmon. That goes on for another 12 verses. Begat, 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 begat. God is saying to you and to me, if we're going to do this thing well, at some point there has to be a begat moment. At some point we've got to elect the next generation lead. At some point we have to invite someone else in to carry on the work. Family legacy doesn't happen without heirs. Church won't exist without spiritual heirs. Family legacy doesn't exist without heirs. The same is true for the church. The church won't exist without spiritual heirs. I think there's three main reasons why people don't like begat moments. It's going to pop up on the screen. Because of insignificance, because of reputation, and because of credit. I think these are the reasons why old people like me, we, we, we don't like begat moments. We don't like begat moments because of insignificance. John 3.30 is when John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that they might increase. Right? I must decrease so Jesus can increase. G John the Baptist was the man. Did you know that there were 400 years of prophetic silence before John the Baptist came onto the stage? 400 years. It would be like if all of social media shut down for 400 years, and then four centuries later, all of a sudden, the first person on the screen. They would be popular. He was viral before they knew what viral was. Thousands of people would go out to hear him preach. 400 years there had not been a prophetic voice in the nation of Israel. 400 years. It's the most dramatic pause in all of history. John the Baptist sets, steps onto the stage to prepare the way for Jesus. And at some moment, John the Baptist realized, this isn't about me, it's about him. And he was gladly willing to become less so Jesus could become more. It's powerful, isn't it? We've, we've got to resist the temptation of insignificance. Pa passing the ton isn't about us becoming less significant, right? 
It's about Jesus always being at the center of attention. Reputation, Mark 9, 38 to 40. I I love this one. This is where the disciples of Jesus came and said, hey, we found some people over there baptizing folks with your name, and they're not part of our group. What do you want us to do about it? Right, because they're 18. And Jesus says, hey, nothing. We're not going to do anything about that. This, this, this is hard for us because the disciples are thinking, I don't, want, I don't know them. I don't want my reputation to be attached to them. See, because if they're doing things in the name of Jesus and then maybe they're doing things that I don't agree with, my reputation is going to be marred by their actions. We can't be afraid, right? Of course, the next generation is going to make mistakes. It's okay. Credit, 1 Corinthians 3, 3-9, Paul, right in this church to the to the town of Corinth. And they, they were divided because some people were aligning, saying that Paul was their spiritual father, and some people were aligning with Apollos. And Paul was saying, hey, it's not about me or Apollos. It's about Jesus. It's not about who gets the credit. That's the chapter in the Bible where Paul says, one man plants another waters, but God gives the increase. It's all about his credit. Insignificance, reputation, and credit. All right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna play a little game here to illustrate. We like a little participation. I have some willing volunteers. They're going to come up. I believe it's Grace and Brennan and Michael. Grace and Brennan and Michael are going to join me on the platform. Come on, you can give them a warm city like welcome. There's a gift card for you with Vanessa at the end of the service. You get to pick which one you want, okay? All right, so they get a little, there's a little prize for participation. So we're going to turn around. Look, we're going to look at the screen. There's going to be a slide pops up. So this is, this, I've, got, I've got four slides. The next one, they're all three. Do, do any of you know what this is? It's, it's close. It is not a recipe box. It's bigger than that. Now, they're participating. <laughs> Who is that? So that's my fault. I didn't make the rules clear. If I had to guess, it would be a bread tin. A bread tin. Nice. It is a bread tin. Come on. So good. So good. I have... My mother still has one of these in the house, and it's what, when I grew up, the extension cords were kept in there. And even today, if you go into the pantry, that's where all the extension cords are, right? Anybody use a bread tin today for their bread? Anybody? Yeah, nobody uses a bread tin today, right? Oh, Brendan does. Who does? Brendan does? Hey! Okay. All right. Okay, all right. You have one, but you didn't recognize. Yours looks different than that. A little bit different. All right, let's do the next slide. Let's do the next slide. What about in the upper right-hand corner for these three to guess? All right. Any, any guess? Upper right-hand corner. A grinder. Four. The, that up there? Yeah, up in the right with a handle on the top. Any takers? Oh, coffee grinder. Nice. So good. It is. Does anybody use a coffee grinder like this to make their coffee, Brennan? Right? Use an electric one, right? Sometimes you like to grind your own beans, but we don't grind them like this. There's in the house that I grew up in, there's a coffee grinder that looks just like that. All right, what about the lower right? This one isn't as hard. Anybody? It's a lemon squeezer. Yes, it's a lemon squeezer or for limes, right? If you want to get juice out, right? Do, do we, no, we have juicers now, right? There's something that is automated that makes it easier. Right? Anybody here still use that to get juice out of lemons and limes? Yeah? All right. Nice. Nice. All right. Now, what about this? Is, this is the tough one right here. If anybody gets this, I'm going to be super impressed, right? 
The one on the left. Anybody? Any any takers? All right. It's, it'll stump you. Anybody out here? Anybody know what that is? Not for hot dogs? Hot comb? No, it's not a hot comb. It, there's a food theme, Jamal. There's a food theme. You can't comb your hair while you're cooking. Help the Right, can you give our volunteers a warm welcome? All right. Warm welcome. Again, Vanessa's got a gift card for you at the end of the service. Anybody else want to take a guess at there? If you get it right, you can get a gift card too. Anybody? It is not for pasta. Anybody? Danielle? What's that? I can't tell. A meat? A meat? No, not a meat tenderizer. Did you say meat tenderizer? Yeah, no. It is, it is for cutting Angel food cake. Yeah. What, why you would need to use that to cut angel food cake, I do not know. But that's what it's for. I don't know when in history that was used. It's, right? Yeah, that's what it is. Some of you, some of you you're not going to hear anything that I have to say for the next 15 minutes because you're going to be online looking at right? why, why are we playing that game, Right? We're, we're playing that game because it's not about kitchen utensils, right? It's about one generation does it differently than the next generation. You, you with me? We have ways that are familiar to us, ways that we like to make decisions, styles of preaching and music and decor and organizational structure. And if we are not careful, listen to me, if we are not careful, the church will become irrelevant if the current generation forces the next generation to use their tools, right? We offer them up as an option, but we cannot be offended when they find a different way. We cannot be offended. It's a, when, when Saul tries to put his armor on David, he says, none of this fits me, right? It's a prophetic moment in Scripture. The future of the church has never been dependent on their generation understanding our ways, but rather our generation releasing their generation to create new ways. Let me say it again. The future of the church has never been dependent on their generation understanding our ways, but rather our generation releasing their generation to create new ways. Begat. We are a church that believes in the power of begat. So I have two begats that I want to tell you about tonight. We have a worship begat that's going to be happening here at City Life. In 2006, the founding pastor here, Pastor Michael Jerome, my brother-in-law, he was a gifted worship leader. He's a gifted musician, still is today. And, and he begat that ministry to Celeste Agate, who's still a part of our church today. Celeste and Chandler on our governance team. How powerful is that? We're part of the plant team. Still here leading the church. She was the worship leader for this church for many years. And then she begat that ministry to somebody you might know by the name of Chris House. Yeah, in 2014, right? So 2006, Pastor Michael begat that ministry to Celeste. Celeste begat that ministry to Chris. And this year in 2023, Chris House is going to begat that ministry to Madeline Harris. Come on. She's going to come on staff here at the church on, on, on May 1st. Listen, th this is part of how transition should happen in a church, 
right? There's no hidden conflict, right? There's nobody's being pushed aside, right? There is, Chris has accepted a position at a church called Life Church in Richmond. I'm friends with a the pastor there, Pastor Vernon, right? We, we believe in this idea of churches working together, and sometimes that means people being called from one church to another. And we, you know, what we say to that, that's okay, right? So we want to respond and support God's call. Respond and support God's call. So Madeline's coming on May 1st. Now, you're still, Chris is still a friend of this church. And he's still going to be here leading worship because Madeline's going to have a baby. And we're going to be like, Chris, we need you. We've been working together on this since January as a leadership team. Are we, gonna, are we sad that Chris is going? Yes. Are we excited that Madeline is coming? Yes. And it's okay to make room in your heart for both of those. It's okay to make room in your heart for both of those. There is a student ministries begat moment that's coming for us as a church. Pastor Michael Durow, not only is he a gifted worship leader, he's just gifted in lots of ways, if you know Pastor Mike. He was, he was also a youth pastor before he planted this church in 2006. We came in 2007. And, and, and student ministries was begat to a series of volunteers for many years. But in 2011, that ministry, we, we begat that ministry to Pastor Justin White, still on staff with us today. Right? He's our missions pastor. He started out in student ministries. He's the, the, apart from me, he was the first pastoral hire we did as a church in 2011. And then in 2016, Pastor Justin begat that ministry to somebody you might know, Pastor David Godwin. Come on, in 2016. So here we are in 2023, in June 1st, Pastor David Godwin is going to begat that ministry to Derek Michaud. You might recognize the last name is the same, no relation. No, I'm just kidding. He's our oldest. He's going to be moving back here. He and David are going to overlap for two months in the summertime for July and August. Pastor David is pursuing a dream to become a college professor. So good, isn't it? Wrapping up his MDiv, he's a glutton for punishment, so he's going for the PhD. Going for the PhD. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that man being on a college campus, influencing the hearts and the minds of the next generation. Okay. The Godwins are not moving. That was part of the agreement. We said we will support your dream of becoming a professor as long as it's within driving distance of City Life Church. They're not moving. They're not going anywhere. They're, they're still going to be a part of the campus director's team. They're still going to be a, just a vital part of the leadership of this church. Hannah is the director of our preschool and before and after school program, doing an amazing job. We said, if you do leave, though, you do have to leave your children. That's part of the deal. Again, we don't have secret motivations here. There's no hidden conflict. We're saying this, this is how transition and change is supposed to happen. This is what a begat feels like when one generation passes the baton to the next generation. It should feel just like this. Jesus himself stepped in to a begat moment. It's powerful, isn't it? John the Baptist said, I must become less so he can become more. Jesus himself said, I need to go so the comforter can come. It's incredible. It's incredible. Look, look, at, this, look at this verse here in John. 
16.7. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. Jesus himself is modeling for us what we're supposed to do. Sometimes we got to step back so somebody else can step up. This is part of the way of Christ. Jesus taught it and Jesus modeled it for us. Come on. And we're going to do the same here at City Life Church. We believe in the power of the begat. I'm going to invite the keys to come back up, not the band. If you've got your communion elements, you can find those. If you're watching online, this might be the last time we use this kind of communion element because Vanessa and I discovered this past week biscuit beignets at Cracker Barrel. Whew. I'm just telling you, if you haven't had a biscuit beignet, Lord have mercy. Changed our life. I think God would say, you know, I could honor that. I could honor a little biscuit beignet. Let's, let's stand together. You know, as we're coming into the Easter season and preparing for this message this week, I was reminded of the, the story where Mary Magdalene comes across someone she believes to be the gardener in the, in, in the garden, in the garden surrounding the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. Now, she, she, she already knows that Jesus' body isn't there. She's even had encounters with angels telling her what's happening, right? But, but she can't, right? Her, her, her humanity can't quite catch up to the reality of the miracle. You with me? And so she comes across this person that she believes to be the gardener. And she says, where, where have they put him? Where have they, where have they taken him? And in that moment, Jesus reveals himself to her, and she realizes, right? Her eyes are open supernaturally, and she realizes this isn't a gardener. This is the risen Lord. And, and, she, and she goes to embrace him, and Jesus doesn't let her. And, and he says to her, don't cling to me. The different translations render it different ways, but I don't believe any of them get it quite right. It's the Greek word hopto, and it means to hold on. It means to cling to something. And what Jesus was saying to me, it wasn't about him not wanting to have physical contact with her. Right? We, we know that that's not the case because when he appeared to Thomas in the upper room, he said, touch the wounds in my hands. Right? He was saying to Mary, Mary, you, you can't hold on to what was. There's something better that's coming. He, he, he was helping Mary. He knew Mary couldn't get a hold of the miracle that was taking a place because she wasn't ready to let go of the relationship she had with Jesus and the nature she had it. And Jesus was saying to her, Mary, what we had over these last three years with you and the others was nothing short of remarkable, but there's more to come and the more is going to be better. And we want to live our lives as devoted followers of Christ, celebrating always what has been but always looking expectantly to the future, believing this still today, 2,000 years later, that God's more is always better. So Jesus, we hold these elements in our hand. We rec recognize that this wafer represents your body broken for us for the forgiveness of sin.
for the work of change and transformation you want to do in us. And so we eat together. Jesus, we hold this cup. We believe that it is sacred, that it represents your blood that was shed for us. That we might be born into your family. That we might hear all of heaven say to us, welcome home. So that we could live all of our days with the prize in hand of knowing the Father and always being known by him. Let's drink together. Help us to begat well as a church. I pray for our church, for City Life Church. I pray for every other church here in the 757. Help us to champion the power of begat. Help us to not cling to what you're asking us to pass on to the next generation. And may it be when those moments come that we will champion them, get behind them, support them, resource them, and yes, follow them. Yep, follow them. Follow them. For your greater glory and for your name's sake, come on, in Jesus' name, everybody said together, amen.